welcome everyone to episode 42 of the Brandon Adams podcast. I have with me Bill Perkins. Bill, I've been trying to get you in here for a while. Thank you very much for doing this. I'm glad that it all came together. You know, F1 brought us together. So we were able to carve out some early time for me, given that we've been raging all week. And this is my second ever live podcast, which I'm pretty fired up about. You can see I've put some work into the studio. Yes, <laughs> it, it's come together nicely. So you are crushing life lately. Um, your pictures on Twitter blew up Twitter. Uh, that was one of the most impressive transformations I've ever seen. Take us back to six months ago. What made you decide to go on this health kick and what is the final destination, this 8% body fat V2? Uh, yeah, I mean, the final destination is always a grave. So um, you want to enjoy the ride, right? It's never about the, it's never about the destination. It's about the journey. But I, I've always been, uh, say, quasi healthy or very conscious of my, of my health, where I'm at, um, how it impacts your, your, your fulfillment, how you feel, et cetera. Uh, except, you know, habits kind of rule who you are, you know, it, it's impossible to be always be off autopilot and your habits kind of take over. And so during the pandemic, when the early numbers were coming out and everybody was like holding up or, 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 or isolating, I, I was running the odds and I was like, well, it looks like within three years, there's a one in 20 chance I'm going to die. And so I had this idea of like, the long term is really truncated probabilistically, right? And so I was developing these habits. And I was I tell people I was eating like a prisoner on death row. Like I didn't care. I was like, well, there is no future. So what does it matter? I'm gonna die in three years, right? And so um, you know, the data changed and as information came out and started to figure out what what the hell was going on and what the what the odds of dying look like. It's like my mindset has changed, right? Like I'm not gonna die in three years, but my habits didn't. And so these habits had set over three months and then over the next course of a year and a half, you know, just tiny changes in these habits blew me up. You know, I'm, I'm um, let's say I have like 195, a steady state, 190, a steady state, right? Uh, 200 extra calories over two years is 41 pounds of, of, of equivalent energy. You know, you're not going to store it all. So call, you know, you know, 35 pounds overweight. And, and if you're 35 pounds of weight on a 200 pound frame, you're, you're, you're damn near obese. You're obese or not obese over yeah. two years. Right. And so, uh, I'm getting, I'm getting married. There's a bachelor, bachelorette, a joint bachelor, bachelorette parity. So, you know, my fiance's friends are going to be there. I'm going to be there. I'm like, I want to, I want to look good. Right. I want to look good for my marriage. And I, I also want to be healthy, but I was on vacation and I weighed myself and I looked at myself and I was just like, tears were welling up. I was like, what, how did I get here? You know, what, what choices maybe had me get to this point? And I knew what, it, I knew the answer was, but I was just kind of really saying to myself, like, why didn't I stop myself? You know? And you know, when you're on autopilot, you just don't know. There's no, there's no, you know, there's no, uh, prompt or sign to say, Hey, stop this behavior. Right. So the scale was a big giant prompt. Looking at myself in the mirror was a big giant prompt. Then the wedding, and the bachelor party was a big giant prompt for me to do something. And so I have good friends, they bet me, right? Which is, you know, 
which was another big prompt, right? Like you can't do it. And there's nothing telling an arrogant, <laughs> you know, an arrogant, confident guy, like you can't do it. Right. It's like the extra motivation to go ahead and do it as well. But I was going to do it anyway. And the ultimate objective was 8% body fat. The, the bet was sub 9%. It's like, can you go from like 24 ish, right. To, to sub nine and, and, you know, I'm, I'm a fairly lazy person. I tell people I'm very lazy. Uh, and it, it's, it's true. That's my natural state, right? They see me doing things and, and discipline or, or ha forming habits that actually get to a goal. And they think, you're not that lazy, yada, yada. I'm like, no, my natural state is the couch. I love it. I love relaxing. I love thinking. I love meditating. Um, so with that in hand, you know, the, the bet was set and there was... You know, I, I say like you could have cut off a leg. I was still going to. So the key parts of your program, the bet was a motivation. You seem to have, based on the Twitter timeline, no real setbacks in these six months. Although you say the last three months were the height of discipline. The key aspects were your trainer, Dwayne, who I, I want to hear about how you connected with him, your Peloton. Yes. And a fairly tight calorie regime that had a, had you running extended deficits of a thousand to fifteen hundred calories per day. Yeah, um, I think I think the main thing is was you know finding Dwayne. So I knew you know I'm a vegetarian and I wanted to find a trader. I mean a trainer uh, that worked with vegetarians, um, and, and kind of understood you know what what I what I'm going to be able to eat and not eat and. Um, so the, the first thing about winning is designing it, right? Like designing my journey. And I was like, okay, I need to have bodybuilder who works with vegetarian because bodybuilders this is what they do, right? You see these guys, they're, they're going on stage 4%, 3%. They're, they know all the latest science and how it reacts. They're not, this is, there's not theoretical. They're, they're like the guinea pigs of every type of routine, um, supplement, diet, et cetera. Right. And so these guys know what they're doing and they've been doing it for 15, 20 years. Right. In the case of Dwayne. And so we searched and we found we found Dwayne. He is a all natural bodybuilding champion. Um, there's a lot of vegetarians in this gym. Uh, and he said, be fine. It's going to work. And so I, I really trust uh, experts in their field when in terms of body transformations, because this is what they do. Like when I go to the doctor, I don't go. You know, hey, doc, you know, uh, let me help you here with this brain surgery, this hip surgery. Are you using the right scalpel, et cetera? I'm like, no, you have the credentials. I trust you. And I shut the F up. And I, you know what I mean? I let you do your job. And so this is kind of like my modus operandi with this bet is first get the experts on your team to help you get there. Um, and then you were a good listener, effectively. Yeah. Like you just did what they were going to they said to do quite consistently. Yeah, I use the doctor model. Like if you go to a doctor and he and you and he's a he's a great doctor and you trust him or you got a second opinion, you can go to two doctors or whatever, but like when they say, "Hey, this is your issue. This is what you need to do. Take this twice a day. Don't do this. Do X, Y, and Z." Most people do it, right? And then it solves their issue, right? So I had a I had a body issue that I needed to solve and I went to the expert and I was like, "Okay, we're going to do, I'm just going to go, whatever you say, I'm going to do. And so 
he completely was in charge of my diet, right? Like they asked the questions like, what do you eat? What do you don't eat? I, I don't like onions, et cetera. I'm a vegetarian, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and he's like, okay, this is what we're going to do, right? So my meals were broken up into five meals a day, certain macros, et cetera. I'm fortunate enough to have a chef. It doesn't come to me. It went straight to the chef. And that's what happened. And so there was no decision making for me with regards to what I ate when I worked out um, and, and how much I ate in the macros. It was all in the hands of experts. Right. And I noticed um, you didn't have a cutting and bulking phase the way someone usually might if they were getting to your end result. Uh, it was sort of all done at the same time, you were working hard throughout and you were cutting calories throughout. Is that true? Um, not completely. I didn't, you know, once again, like I, I would ask questions kind of like, hey, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Um, there was, it, it went in phases. In the beginning, it seemed like it was just, it was hell, right? Like it was like the, so much so many workouts a day in terms of just cardio, like uh, before you eat, after you eat, and then 45 minutes at night. And then the workouts, which were always 30 minutes of weight training. And people say only 30 minutes. I'm like, it's hell. There's no rest, right? You just go from, you rest by doing a different muscle group. So, you know, I felt like my heart was going to explode uh, during, during these workouts. But, you know, as we progressed, there would be days where the calories that I would eat in a day would go you know, there was low, medium and high day. And there would be once in a while a high day, right? To feed the muscles, right? Because you, as, I, as it was, was explained to me, and I didn't research it completely, but that your body is either breaking down or it's building, right? It's very, it doesn't do both at the same time. And so we'd be, you know, doing weights, but breaking down fat. And, and eliminating it with that is also you're breaking down muscle tissue while you're doing weights. Right. And then we need to feed the muscle a certain day, like rest and feed the muscle. And so Dwayne was in charge with that. And, um, you know, there'd be this one high day, which I would feel stuffed like a, a medium day. I would feel stuffed like my normal calorie burn because I was so used to eating, uh, I think 1600 calories a day, 1590, 1600 calories a day that when it went up to like 2,500, I'd be like, this is way too much food. Right. And towards the end, when I was getting closer to the goal and we were like feeding the muscle more, I would have like three high days in a row. And it was like 3,500, 3,600, you know, 3,800 calories. And I was just like, this is crazy. Now, keep in mind, when I was vacationing two years ago, I might eat 4,000, 5,000 calories in a day. No problem. Right. right? And so it, it's amazing how your, your, your stomach shrinks and you get used to a certain amount, uh, amount of calories coming into your to your body. Right? And you were, you were running pretty tight in terms of no alcohol. You would go out to eat, but you would specify ahead of time the menu. Yeah. So I'm not a big drinker anyway, uh, but there was zero alcohol, no added sugars. I mean, there was some foods that had some extra sh sugar in it, particularly on high days. But um, you know, when I, you know, my morning stack would sometimes be a vegetarian protein shake, um, some carrots and some celeries, right. And the carrots are so sweet to me, right. Because it's like, wow, these, these, did, did somebody put sugar in these carrots, you know, that type of thing, you know, uh, because you're, you're, you're eating lean. Um, and when I went out, um, you call ahead, the menu was researched, 
call ahead what's in there what's the portions designed it so whenever i went out um it was easy for me to eat i, I didn't come in clueless and then overeat or ruin my diet and you know i say romance is planning and passion is spontaneity and so i like to be very romantic and so going out to eat there's no hassle you know lara my fiance she still got a piece of me and we still got to do things but then i would come in prepared right so i would know read off my phone um I'll have this, 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 no onions, <laughs> no onions. God damn it. <laughs> I like it. Um, one of my favorite things about your book and your Twitter feed is that you question a lot of assumptions that other people don't question and you recognize trade-offs where other people don't recognize trade-offs as it relates to diet, you have, for instance, the uh, treadmill minutes to cookie ratio. Yeah, that's. And I saw you yesterday snacking on the occasional uh, chip or popcorn, and presumably in your mind, you're thinking like, <laughs> Yeah, I, I was actually. This has been a pretty uh, wild and fun weekend coming here to F1, and I, I, you know, I'm thinking like, okay, I know I have snack, I know I have X, you know, my snack periods of calories, and I was, I, re I remember uh, you didn't see this, but we were at Carbone. And there was a cheesecake there and I took a little bite and I was like, okay, this is worth an hour. And I took another bite. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually worth an hour on the treadmill. It's going to hurt, but this is worth it. I was like, this is the best damn cheesecake I've, I've ever tasted in my entire life. And so I was not going to give up on that experience, but I knew I'd be paying for it later, you know, but it was worth an hour. I love it. And as it relates to uh, finances, which a lot of Die With Zero is about, I just finished my second reading. Yeah. Um, you say that a lot of people have unquestioned assumptions regarding retirement savings, regarding spending decisions. Uh, you have a passage in there about Steve Levitt, where Steve Levitt arrived for his, his first job. And he was, he was quite frugal and an older colleague took him aside and said, Steve, like, this is not the way to run your life. You should be spending now the way you envision spending 15 years from now when you're a tenured faculty member, this is not the time to save because for sure you, you will be earning much more in 15 years. You should be borrowing now and then do your saving when you're 50 years yeah. old. Yeah, he's, he's basically teaching about income smoothing. But I want to explain the time thing real quick because I, I didn't do a real thing about cookies and time in case people were there. So for me, um, if I work very, very hard on a, on a Peloton, right, I'm busting my ass. It, probably an hour of work is like 660, 700 calories but I got to subtract out the hundred calories that I would do doing nothing. So it's a net plus 600 calories, right? And it's very painful. And most of the time my workouts on a Peloton are only 45 minutes. So now I'm doing an extra 15 minutes. So if I go and eat two cookies, it's about an hour on the Peloton, right? And so those cookies got to be worth an hour of my time busting my ass, like, hurting on the Peloton. So I think about that in terms of, you know, am I going to overeat here? Am I going to indulge in this experience and pay the price later? And that's kind of the cookie to time ratio that that's always going around my head, given that I want to be in a certain shape and maintain a certain weight. Do you think most people in practice, like 
imagine themselves doing a program like you just completed. See, I kind of think that most people that have severe constraints on their, on their time and stuff, they don't do that treadmill to cookie ratio because they assume that if they really wanted to, they could accomplish what you did in the last six months. They could just do it all at once. Whereas in fact, no one does what you did. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of planning and a lot of design and a lot of motivation converging um, to do that. And I, I don't think people think, you know, Oh, that's going to take all my time. And if they do, they, they would begin to realize like how, little free time to have to slot an extra hour to go be on a, on a treadmill. Right. And so I always, uh, you know, you come to the quick realization is the, you know, diet is 85% of it. Like you don't have the time to eat the way, you know, TV advertises to you, right? Like have this, have this double bowl so-and-so and and these chips and nachos, you know, the, the way you're advertised for all these meals that are like, you know, you know, the salad is 2000 calories, the so-and-so is X, Y, and Z. And if you started, you know, if that came up with time instead of calories, it'd be like, okay, that's two hours is three hours is 30 minutes is an hour. You'd be like, I don't, I don't have, I can't do that. Right. And so you realize like the best thing to do is to avoid putting it into your system. Not just for the time reason, the cholesterol and all the other stuff like that. Right. But that's what I've come to the conclusion is like, it's just not worth the time. Um, and sometimes things taste so good. The experience of pleasure. I'm like, it's worth the time, <laughs> you know, I'll do it. I'll, I'll suffer. But that's that. I just wanted to go a little bit further into that cookie to time ratio, because I think it's important, you know, not to go like, oh, I have the time. But like, I think you come to the realization is that I don't have the time, right? Like it, it's going to cost me a lot. And then when you start doing the secondary calculation, like an hour of my time, let's say you go to work an hour, your time is worth 50 bucks, Right. You make $50 an hour, whatever, whatever it is. Not only is the, you, then you start to think, well, eating that cookie, well, I paid $3 for this thing, right? These two cookies, but then it's going to cost me $50 in my time to balance it out. Yeah. And you're like, shit, this is an expensive cookie. But I will say that Carbone cheesecake was worth it. It was worth <laughs> the, the two hours. It was worth it. It was worth an hour to me. So, but back to Steve, or you want to? Well, in your book, it's essentially arguing that the most important optimization problem that we have to solve is a multifaceted problem of time money, energy, and health. And yeah. most people navigate this poorly. And your your broad <clears throat> recommendation is that health is always first at almost every stage of Correct. life. Time is second, or rather, as soon as you can afford to prioritize time second, you should. Right. And Money is third, and many people, in your estimation, uh, don't think of money properly where it should properly be thought of as a means to an end. And in particular, uh, you note that many of your friends are fairly high income and wealth, and when they have enough, they should sort of stop definitionally right. <laughs> accumulating, but they often don't. Right. 
And <clears throat> your experience is many people should, should be trading in money for the most important thing, health and for time, energy and experiences far sooner than they do. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the trying to unpack which way I want to go with this with like, with the friends of people that, that the money is a tool, right? It's a tool to achieve, um, you know, the experiences, the things you want to have to, to, to help you with your net fulfillment. And somehow along the way, the habits they form, right? They got really good at acquiring capital and they had to form habits to do it. And these habits tend to take over and somehow that becomes the goal, right? It's like, oh, I need a hammer to build a house. They get a hammer, they get two hammers, they get three hammers, they got 700 hammers and they still haven't built the house, right? It's kind of like, the goal is not the hammers. The goal is the house. <laughs> you know? like, stop accumulating hammers. You have enough hammers already. You know, you got three workers, three hammers. Let's go. You know, and so that happens in kind of like the same way that like I blew up and, and became uh, obese or near obese. Um, they they become, you know, flooded with capital and, and let their 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 dreams go by. They don't build the house. Right. And then they have this thing called the grave death is coming for all of us um, and their body is deteriorating. And so now, you know, these guys were going to build a two story house, but the health won't even let them walk up to the top story. Right. So they waited too long to build the house right now. They got to build a one story. Right. And then so on in this analogy, right. That I'm using. And so, you know, I try and remind people that, um, you know, you're going to work for a goal and the goal was not money. That was just a transition state to get to all the other things that you wanted out of life. I love how you define health in the book as a rate of decline or a management of decline. And an investment in health is basically lowering the rate of decline. And you note that negative health habits in particular tend to compound. Could you explain that? Yeah. Uh, so, I like to use an example, like just use the knee example or, or, or any kind of example. Like it's very, you know, I think the holistic doctors kind of have it right. Like in terms of like, you know, if you're, if you're a, a, a pound overweight, right. It's three to four pounds of force upon your knees, right. Extra that your knee wasn't designed and there's cartilage in your knee. And so um, you tear up that early, right. And then you can't walk as much. And you gain more weight, your back starts to hurt because now you're 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 using all this weight to carry. You know, the fat is distributed in a certain way, and now you have a back problem, right? Now you're at the chiropractor. You're thinking about knee replacement surgery and some sort of back surgery or pills, and you're taking all kinds of medicine for your back and your pain. But those have side effects. You can't sleep, right? And so, a, the simple thing of being like a couple pounds overweight and affecting your knees starts to compound and go exponential all around your body, right? Now you have the sleeping issue because you, you know, you have all kinds of issues and you fall apart, right? Ask any kind of doctor about gut health, right? And then all the other problems that have by having it out of balance, right? You can use a house like, you know, I have a leak from the garden hose. Well, then that eroded some of the dirt, which caused your building to shift. Now you have a crack, right? in your building and then you're like well this door won't shut why won't this door shut 
And you're like, oh, it's because of the crack. No, it's because of the leak, right? And so this is how our bodies work. There's these systems that go on. And, and when, when something's out of line or, 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 or going wrong with, in your health and you're not taking care of it, right, it tends to spread through all other areas of our body and cause all sorts of problems, which causes um, our inability to enjoy, enjoy certain activities or um, actually do activities, right? Because there's your ability to do the activity and whether you enjoy it, right? And so it, it, it almost has the same effect because if you like, you don't enjoy walking, you won't do it, right? Whether you're able or not. And then you fall apart and you, you don't enjoy life and you die sooner. Now, in the book, you mentioned that you've worked with uh, Christian Rinna at Lifespan mm -hmm. in L.A., I think. Um, <clears throat> this is presumably a uh, boutique health spot where you do preventive screening, probably quite expensive. At what, at what stage in your life did you start uh, investing in health in that way? Call it extreme health. Yeah. I, you know, I've always um, kind of in the back of my head been like, okay, you know, and read enough to like little pieces like diagnostics are the key. Like a lot of people who, you know, if you diagnose cancer earlier, you diagnose this problem early enough, right? Your, your, your chances of a, a, a successful outcome, you know, one that you want is goes up, right? And, and some of the cancers where they're like, oh, this is always fatal. It's because they catch it too late, right? There's no diagnostic diagnostic test. I think it's pancreatic cancer, but I, I could be wrong. So don't quote me on that. But so I was like, okay, it, it can't hurt to have the diagnostics to attack anything that may be wrong with me. And then also, you know, correct any kind of behaviors or diets or foods or things that are going on with me before it becomes an issue. Because like I said, these things compound over time, even if they're small. And so I, I actually got picked this up in the poker world, right? I played poker and there's lots of old guys who play poker. And I was in LA and they were like, oh yeah, we do this lifespan thing. It came up. I was like, I need to check this out. Like different philosophy, right? They, their, their philosophy is like, your problem is not my annuity, which is kind of like, the typical doctor, right? Like the typical doctor is like, just get the diagnosis, right? You come in, I write a prescription, right? And go, and, and you know, you go away, you'll come back with another thing, right? Lifespan's philosophy is, is like, we, we're going to treat you, the whole you, to get you into the best possible shape that you want to be. What is the best version of you? Not the average you, right? Like who wants to be the average American given the obesity epidemic here? But like, what is the best you can possibly be? And so you're right. Um, there's about five to 10% of doctors, 5% doctors in the United States that kind of have that, that belief, right? Like you're not my annuity. I'm here to help you be the best you can be. And so part of that is a metric fuck ton <laughs> of <laughs> diagnostic blood tests, et cetera, uh, and lots of uh, checkups, et cetera. And then address and then interviews about like, wh wh what are your goals? What would you want to be? Like, where do you want to be? How, how can we get you the healthiest you possibly can given the latest and greatest in science and technology? And then what's your risk profile? Like what, what would you, what would you like to be? And here's a risk reward of trying to do that. Right. And so given who you are, your blood type, genes, et cetera. And so, uh, I was like, it's time for me to go do this. It was time for me way back when, right. But you know, it's always now it's never any other time, but now, and so I was like, okay, let let me do this and signed up. And I'm very happy I did. 
now is part of their technique uh, doing imaging before yeah. there's a problem yeah there's 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 imaging there's the there's the routine things there's imaging there's tons of blood vials drawn uh quarterly or 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 at least twice a year um it's the complete mock-up right and then if there's something going on or something out of range for your uh for your for your body there'll be there'll be more tests right they'll there'll be a specialist you're going to go to the specialist and we're going to dive deep on this particular issue. Super and, random question. Yeah. Do they have a view on uh, HGH? Because I was taking it for my elbow recovery and I have to say it has some strong benefits. I, I wouldn't take it on a regular basis just due to the risk profile, um, which honestly I can't really speak to. I yeah. just have an intuitive sense that it might cause cancer. Yeah, I think, I think uh, so with the HGH, um, I don't know if they have like this is our overall view. They use it, look at it as a tool, especially in aging as old, older people, right? And it depends on what you want. Um, there, the, uh, I remember the concern that Dr. Renner and there might have been other concerns um, is that HGH can be confused with something else, um, and if you're like pre-diabetic or your blood sugar level is, it can kind of push you into um, like a, a di diabetes. Yeah. Diabetes, right. Like, uh, and so there was, there's concern about like where your blood sugar markers are, et cetera, like HGH molecule being confused by X, Y, and Z, and then messing with your, your glucose, et cetera. Now I, I guys, I might be screwing this up, right? Like, so don't kill me, Dr. Renna, and don't kill me, <laughs> you medical warriors out there, like whatever. But that was explained to me as like, Hey, we need to be careful about this, um, issue of how this molecule, right. Um, there's, uh, you know, also people talk about uh, cancer risk or whatever, like um, not in terms that it causes cancer, but that if you have cancer or, or anything that it can accelerate the growth of, of cancer cells. I've heard that, whatever, that wasn't a concern. And given the diagnostics and, and et cetera, and all the other markers in my body, that wouldn't be a concern. So those are the things I've heard about that yeah. view on HGH. I mean, I don't want to speak for Dr. Renner. You can, I can, you know. Put you in touch with him. He's actually a great person to interview. Yeah. Great. Like that would be talk and that would be phenomenal. Uh, yeah. That you don't hear people talk about HGH. Have you tried it before? Yes. And you, yes, it, it feels good, right? Like, uh, good. I really didn't notice that much of yeah. a difference except for my skin. My skin looks great on, 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 on that stem cells, stem cells and HGH. Uh, people are like, Oh, do you notice this? I said, the main thing, I noticed is my skin looks really good and heals fast. So you've tried the stem cells before? Yes. I tried my own stem cells. Uh, so way, way, way back when they would take your fat, like a little bit of your fat, get the stem cells out of it, uh, grow them and then re-inject them into you. So, uh, and then, you know, cause I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't want to try anybody else's stem cells. Like what, what's going to, you know what I mean? Like, I don't want any foreign, you yeah, know what I mean? Like, yeah. but I was okay with them, like taking my stems out and spinning them around, you know, doing whatever they do and then growing them because they're mine. And I'm not going to have like these rejection or issue. And so then the technology caught up from, you know, uh, that they removed, uh, whatever caused people to have reactions to other stem cells. And, you know, stem cell technology is just like, flying right because 
you know, us people who don't want to die and want to be healthy are like willing to pay a lot of money. So there's a lot of uh, research into stem cell. Plus it's, 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 you know, cutting edge frontier stuff. And so now, you know, it was cord blood stem cells and young stem cells to make sure that they don't senesce, they don't die early and all this other kind of stuff. And so stem cell lines have gotten a lot better where you can actually, you know, I feel comfortable um, using the latest, greatest stem cells that are out there. I love it. I've got to do some deeper research myself. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you a question about personal finance. Um, on the unquestioned assumption front, you point out that many people take advice either from a financial advisor or from stuff they read, and they don't realize that there's an incentive structure behind that. Right. And for financial advisors, they would never advise you to do an annuity because if you took half of your money and put it in a annuity, that would be half less income for them. Um, and to be honest with you, I hadn't thought about annuities before I read your book. I, I would imagine many people haven't, but um, <clears throat> you make a pretty strong case for it and you cite what you call the annuity puzzle, which is the fact that economists think that annuities are a very rational way for people to plan for a lifetime consumption. And yet most people don't use annuities. Um, what, what led you into researching them and what's your current view? Well, I, okay. So the, the, the first part was what, what led me to think about it. And the real thing was, is when I talk about this idea, like die with zero, right? People are like, well, what if you run out of money or whatever? And I'm just like, guy fucking buy an annuity. You know what I mean? Like, you know, it's kind of like if you're worried about running your money, buy a fucking annuity. Like, stop with your bullshit. Like, stop trying to give me this excuse because you really don't want to think about your life and 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 you want to be on autopilot. So you're trying to act like your own insurance agent. Right. Like, so people um, like, what if I read money? What if I live to like 102 and whatever? Besides the fact that as you age, you spend less money. That is like an axiom of life, right? For for percent of the people, even with rising healthcare costs, you spend less money because you do less. Um, people were using this like excuse of like, well, I'm going to work or whatever because I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know, you know, what if something bad happens or what if I live too long, right? And so I was kind of deconstructing their arguments or their fears or whatever it was and saying, oh, there's an insurance part of why you're wasting your life. You're working real hard right now to play insurance agent for yourself. And I'm like, well, if the income part is you're trying to insure, right? Let's take that part of it, right? Buy an insurance policy, right? Even if it was like, you know, people don't go out and be like, well, I'm going to work overtime today because I, what if I get in a car accident? They buy auto insurance, right? Yeah. And so like, it's kind of irrational for people to act as their own insurance agent for a client of one, right? Insurance companies don't work unless they have thousands of clients, right? To get the law of large numbers on their side. They have actuarial sci scientists on, on their side. They've done all the math, et cetera. And they have financial engineers on their side. They have all kinds of people to do this stuff. So like when you buy an annuity, their margins, even though they're making a little bit of margin, it's not that great, right? But think about the margin of you working overtime in order to have more money just in case you live an extra five years. Right. So 
it, they're going to be more efficient and it's going to be more optimal for you to buy the annuity than to waste your life trying to play insurance agent. And that's, that's how it came to me, right? Like that's why I think of it. There's a lot of security that comes with an annuity because you know that it will be there every month until you die. A lot of people try to capture an annuity through their own like investment portfolio. And the result of that you think is that most people's observed behavior is that they never spin through principle, which they kind of should yeah. uh, in an optimal consumption way of thinking. Yeah. They, 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 to the extent that you don't uh, spend down the principle, that's inefficient, right? Um, that's a lot of waste and that waste, you know, I don't want to just like, Oh, waste is dollars. No, this is hours of your life. These are times that you didn't spend with your family or your loved ones or, 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 or take the trip that you wanted to take. Right. This is you like essentially going to some sort of like jail, jail away from the things that you really wanted to do right in, in exchange to have this this capital and if you don't use that capital it's like well why did you go to jail right <laughs> so um and i like to put in those terms to like be very forceful to get across right because people want to be right and they love to stay into their habits and I'm like, i want to put it in a new perspective for them to break those habits right so i like to use forceful terms or scary terms like jail <laughs> you know like <laughs> uh and so um, people, people like they try and play their own financial genius or wizardry, right? Like I did this with college, like when college was like, oh, I need to start investing and saving for college. Right. And then they came out with these 529 plans where you can like prepay for college and it's always the same price. Right. I was like, wait, am I going to try and like gamble that I can beat the inflation of college right in the market? Right. And gamble. Oh, and I can lose that money or I could just buy college right now. Right. And it's locked in. Right. I was like, no need to gamble. Here we go. Right. And so it's, it's kind of that type of planning and thinking about your life and what your fears are. Right. Like my fear was college was going to skyrocket and go up into the stratosphere versus my ability to pick stocks and make a return. And I was like, why, why am I gambling when I can just buy the 529 plan? They give you a small discount and you're locked. Right. And so, um, you know, people are out there gambling, right. They're gambling two ways. They're like, well, I might live longer. Right. And then they're also gambling that, Hey, my stock portfolio is going to do well enough to cover me longer. And it's just kind of like the, so now I have the risk of ruin and, and, and I could live longer. And it's just like, guys, there, there's, there's people out here who are experts. Like, (laughs) (laughs) like, why are you trying to beat them at their job? You can't Yeah, like, stop. Like you can't beat the house. They're the house. Like just go with them, get them on your side, you know? And an annuity is a bet on yourself in a way. Yeah. You're, uh, it's a bet that you'll live longer than expected, which yeah. is kind of cool. Yeah. Like that's like, 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 you know, so that's why it came up, right? People are like, well, that's easy if you know exactly when you're going to die, blah, 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 blah. I need to keep working like a monkey to save in case I live to 155. I'm like, well, buy an annuity. Stop working like a monkey and enjoy your life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Now you mentioned inflation with regard to college. Uh, a lot of people in the poker world, they gravitated to Bitcoin primarily because they worried about inflation and they didn't trust the government. They didn't, right. they didn't trust uh, the government to maintain the value of the dollar. 
I guess one drawback of an annuity is that you are somewhat trusting the government to be responsible. Yeah, you can draw, you can buy inflation protected annuities. I didn't know that. You can do it. I didn't know that. Listen, okay. I mean, if you're in finance, there's a product for everything. Like they yeah. will design a product for you for everything. There's this is the you know one that's great thing about the United States of America. There there's they design all kinds of things. So of course you this is not tips. financial advice, but is there is there a firm that gives good advice for uh, these types of insurance contracts, these annuities? And for listeners that don't know, uh, annuity is you give a lump sum and then you get a fixed payment until you die. Yeah, in the future. I I don't I don't you know. I want to say like your standard people, but then again, these the incentives, right? We're, we're not aligned, right? They, they try and steer you into products that that they get the most. But I think if you had a paid, a good paid financial advisor, right? Not paid as like a percent of your income, but like a paid hourly, right? Mm -hmm. Like the incentive structures, right? That they're going to offer the gamut of tools to you correctly, right? So, um, but I don't, I don't have a recommendation. I'm not like, Hey, JP Morgan or, or, or Morgan Stanley or Jay Aaron. Right. Like, I, I don't know, but I think the main thing to do is, is that, um, and this is not a knock on any financial advisor. I'm just like to get the incentives aligned. Right. I'd rather pay them a fee yeah. than pay them a percent. Right. Because what do they want? They want your the assets under management to be as large as possible. Right. Cause they get a percent of what's going on. They're gambling with your money and they get a percent. But if I'm just paying a fixed fee, they're, they're like, I need to give the best advice possible um to get those incentive structures aligned and then it's also when you talk to your financial advisor right i think one of the things people do right they come up with the mindset which comes from like history or the universe is like i want the most money i want whatever and it's like no you have to sit down with your financial planner and be like these are my goals when i'm 65 i'd like to go on a boat trip I like to go hiking. I like to live in sunny Florida <laughs> in a condo. I like to do X, Y, and Z. And they sit down and they're like, this is gonna cost this, and this is gonna cost that, and this is how much you have now, and this is how much you're working. They're gonna be like, okay, you need to save a little bit more for these things. You can spend a little bit more, blah, blah, blah. And bing, this is what we need, right? This is what I recommend, right? Oh, and you're concerned about this? I think you should get long-term care insurance, right? You're worried about like, not being able to care for yourself or your grandma. Let's buy long-term care insurance. These are the best guys that have it, blah, 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 blah. If you buy it now, it's cheap. They'll take all the financial risk or whatever, and then they'll spit out a nurse for you later on, <laughs> later on in life at the right time, right? And so that's kind of what you need to do. It's not just, oh, uh, I want an annuity, right? Which you, nobody wants an annuity. Nobody wants a nurse. What they want is a fucking life. <laughs> right you want a fucking life you want the life that you want right and so when you sit down with the financial planner when you go to your job everything is designed for you to have the fucking life you want and that's how you need to be thinking right and that's how everything needs to fit in your life and you're like oh i have these concerns okay let's bring the tools right these are fears these are the things that you don't want to happen let's bring the tools that efficiently deal with this not you running around working overtime like a monkey, wasting your life, right? Like, and so, you know, the book is about optimizing your life for net fulfillment, about you getting what you want out of life. Now, it's not like a book of financial tools or a book of, 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 of you know, buy an annuity or buy that. Those are there, um, particularly in response to people's objections about 
oh, it's easy to say to have the most fulfilling life. It's easy for you to say die with zero, right? And they come up with these excuses. And I'm like, listen, the United States of America is a wonderful, wonderful country with wonderful, wonderful businesses and wonderful, wonderful entrepreneurs that solve all kinds of interesting problems. And the problems in finance, oh my God, they got the gamut of tools. You just need to come in with the mindset of like, I want to use these tools to enhance my life. The same way that money is there to enhance and fulfill your life, not the other way around. You are not there to accumulate money. Money is there for you to accumulate life. Now, uh, I imagine if you uh, have an updated edition, you'll, you'll include a couple of pages in Lifetime Care Insurance. You tweeted recently that you thought that was a good idea. That is to uh, allay anxieties about um, extreme health costs late in life. What is, what is that? Well, I think, I think, um, you know, I, 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 I'm, I'm older and I have older parents, right? My, my dad died. And when, um, you know, the last, I think maybe five years of life, I, I took care of him and I, I paid for, uh, you know, it wasn't me particularly taking care of him, but I had two round the clock nurses. He had 24 hour nursing care, um, in an assisted living at one point. I think like maybe the last two, three years. Right. And so, um, and you know, I'm fortunate enough to afford that. Right. I can, I can do that. And I'm not saying everybody's going to have that extreme say, uh, case, but you know, if you're not, you know, in, in our culture, right. We don't live with seven or aunts and uncles, et cetera, where everybody takes care of each other. Right. Um, you know, they, there's a saying that, you know, Americans die alone, uh, Japanese don't. But, and so, you know, this is, I'm going to go through this with my mother and, and other people in my lives. And I realized like, you know, when you look at the cost of these things, like $50 a month or something like that for long-term care insurance, when you do it early, right? Like these guys are doing the financial engineering and gambling in the stock market or whatever they're doing, using depreciation tax, whatever. And they're, they're like the cost of nursing and service is going to be X in the future. And they're taking that gamble, right? And you're like, hey, it may be a good idea to lock that in, right? So that I don't have this fear of like, who's going to help either my loved one or myself later in life. And when I look at like kind of, you know, inflation and wage inflation and things going on, I'm like, this is not a bad idea. This takes a lot of stress off, off, my, off my palate, other people's palate. The prices seem extremely reasonable. Um, and it's, it's, it seems to be, you know, especially the way we're living, like the way we're living and eating, it seems to be like more and more of a necessity later in life. So one of the themes I take from your book is know the gambles that you're taking. And I, yeah. I hear you talk and it, it sounds like you think people are taking a, a lot of gambles that they don't know they're taking. For instance, trusting their retirement to the stock market, Correct. for instance, um, you, you say that you uh, trade some stocks, but you basically don't put a lot of faith in it. I wanted to ask you uh, some questions about trading. I obviously follow your Twitter pretty closely, and you've mentioned that you're a natural pessimist and one should trade along with one's natural personality type. What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's not like I'm a, a pessimist in terms of, I'm a pessimist in prices. And just in general, um, I, which means I'm really an optimist in progress. Right? I see. Yeah. You, you you're, know, you're an optimist in supply curves or in technological. Progress. Yeah. 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 Yes. Like it's like, you know, 
you know, I'm, I'm one of those guys that I guess maybe because I um, went to school for electrical engineering and I've seen the progress and I've seen too many price of memory graphs in my life, right? Like if, if you look at the price of memory over time, it's one of my favorite charts. It's like a straight line down, no matter what, no matter how, how many iPhones happen, blah, blah, blah. Now recently we have a supply chain issues and we have a little blip. We also had a tsunami. We had a little blip there, but it, and that chart is log normal, right? So it's not even like a, a linear chart. It's a log normal chart straight down. You can look it up, like, like pull up graphs, uh, uh, the price of memory over time, click on images, and it's just an amazing graph, right? And so, you know, price of TVs, you know, you're like, oh, cars are expensive. I'm like, well, if you buy the luxury car, but you can buy like a nice $10,000 car and it is fucking fantastic to a car 10 mm -hmm. years ago. Right. Like it's got the Bluetooth and the so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And so and so. It's like got everything. Right. And so, uh, you know, and there's tons of entrepreneurs out there who are out there to make things better, faster, cheaper all the time. Right. And so, you know, companies that have these things that they're making and like, oh, I like this and I like the phone. There's somebody who's going to come along and destroy that value you know, and take a small piece of it and deliver it faster, better, cheaper. So I'm always concerned about, about that. Right. And I also look at like uh, indices, like, well, the Dow, this, I'm like, the Dow's not the same Dow that it was 30 years. It's actually an actively managed index. Right. So is the S and P 500, right. They're constantly pulling things in and out. Right. If you bought, you're like, well, I wish I bought the companies in 1920 and the Dow. I'm like, they're not there anymore. Maybe one, right. Like you'd be busted. Right. You'd have, they have to actively manage it. And so, that's how I'm kind of a natural pessimist. And I'm also concerned about the risk of ruin. I'm like, I'm a human being and I'm going to die. I'm not going to be here for 200 years. I can't sit here and wait for another 30 years for the stock market to re recover right over time or next 20 years. And so let's even shorten that. Like, let's say it's one of the big drawdowns and I'm 65 and it's time for me to take the money out and pay my bills or go on the trip. I wanted to trip, go on, but my portfolio's, destroyed i don't have 20 years i'm dead in 20 years right so i can't take the risk of ruin so i'm a little little uh you know that to me doesn't seem like an effective tool for me to 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 maintain my wealth right to build wealth to take a gamble right? right i might do it i'm like it's time to gamble you know but like to actually maintain my wealth and stay wealthy to me doesn't seem like an effective tool and, you know, people talk, well, what about inflation? Whatever. Like, I bought tips. I fired into uh, uh, tips or, or, or inflation protective uh, securities, right? And so, for the U.S. Treasury, and they, they changed the principal based on the inflation rate. You get a nice little adjustment. Got a nice little adjustment this past quarter. A little 8.5% kick up, right? And so, and so, I'm like, okay, if I want, I, you know, if I, my thing is like, if I'm worried about something, I try and get as close to the, to the, the risk to offset it exactly. Right. You might argue that the CPI doesn't correctly measure inflation, but it's as close as possible. Like, I don't want to have this like loosely correlated inflation hedge that used to work over time, <laughs> but doesn't work now because of X, Y, and Z. I want to be right there. Right. I made the case at F1 that, one of your new inflation hedges should be uh, a big wine collection for yeah. your new restaurant. Can you talk a bit about your new restaurant? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you, so I, I'm, I, um, 
one of the experiences I want to have with my fiance is us working together, right? Us doing projects together, right? Um, and so she's a big foodie um, and I like lounges and we decided, and I'm, 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 a, I'm a, a vegetarian and we decided to have a vegan lounge club restaurant. Um, it's going to be called the Jupiter Supper Club. It's named after my uh, great grandfather to the fourth who fought in the Revolutionary War as a slave under General Rensselaer. And so um, it's in Austin. We bought the building. I'm going to spend way too much money making it basically an extension of my house, like the coolest place. Like when people go there, they're going to feel like they stole something. You know, you know, I had friends like, can I invest with you? I'm like, you don't want to invest. I promise <laughs> you. We're never recovering the CapEx ever. Uh, and so I, I uh, you know, we're going at it and it's already producing great memory dividends and projects, just kind of like how we want to design it. We're already thinking about it and, and, and getting the designers and ideas and vegan high tea and kitchen open till 4 a.m. and all these kinds of things where we want to do. Like, what would we like if we went to a place? How, how would we want to have an experience? What experience would we want to have? And so super excited about it. And you say that some people sort of go over budget on lighting by spending 150K or something and and you have budgeted uh, $2 million for your lighting? Yeah, well, actually, it's, it's not lighting. So I want to have this room. Um, there's a, I went to um, Casa Gaudi, like when I go into Barcelona, I like tour these houses. And, and in Casa Gaudi, they have, you tour the, the Gaudi house that he designed for a family. And then at the bottom, there's this thing called the, the, the Dragon's Lair. Okay. And it's this big giant room cube that everything is a screen, right? It's kind of like a Star Trek holodeck, even the floor. And you go in, they close the door, and then like this show goes around. It's like crazy. You're just like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is this is so cool. This is so cool. And so I, I, I've always just been thinking about that. And actually, I wanted to make like a small one. Like, you know how when you go to a wedding, they have a photo booth? I wanted to have like the cube, right? And people just have this kind of like wedding experience. But it was like too expensive to do for one-time use, you know, and design for the weather. And I've always been thinking about that. And so when we looked at the space, you know, there's like kind of this area in the front bar room. Then there's like an area where they had a stage. And then there's an upstairs and yada, yada, yada. And so I was like, wouldn't it be cool? if the stage was like the cube, like the stage room, you know, it was like all these alpha lights all around and the cube. And so I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm very, um, once I get attached to an idea, I'm, I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I gotta do it. Like I, I can't, I can start getting impatient. And so I'm like, all right, all right, fine. It's going to happen. Like now that I've thought about it, whatever, I, I can't imagine myself five year hence and be like, oh, I didn't do it. And always going, wow, that would have been cool. But I wish I did it. So now that one room is going to be this giant like holodeck where it can be set to any type of experience. Imagine having shows there. Imagine having vegan high tea and you're in like Tsarist Russia at the time, you know, or you're in, I can set the environment to be whatever it is. I can put all the kind of crazy shows. And so I'm happy about that. That's awesome. And uh, all kinds who of programs the experiences, for instance? There's art, there's, so there's digital artists that do that. Like I, I know like some of our audience has probably gone to like a concert or, or Diplo concert or Rufus the Soul concert. 
and they're playing and you look at the screen and you're like, wow, this is so goddamn cool, right? Like, you know, this is amazing. So, but imagine that's all around you, on your feet, you're in it, you're immersed into it, right? Like, so imagine that and you're like dancing or you're having tea and it's like whatever experience you have. And so I, I'm, I'm pretty psyched to actually experience it myself, you know, to, 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 be able to do it and be part of it. And it'll be the first one in North America. They, they have these in different uh, continents, but they've never had one set up, a cube set up in uh, North America. So I am like, you know, working with the designers and the engineers and be like, all right, how do we get it? And how do we get it right, et cetera. And I'm just like, the budget just keeps going up and up and up. So that's why I say when people come to Jupiter Supper Club, not only will they have a great experience, but they, they're going to go out feeling like they stole something because I'm, building it for me and myself and Lara to have this experience and enjoy it and really love it. Uh, I'm, and, and, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a labor of love, not necessarily this business, but with the wine, what you convinced me of, right. Was that I said that you asked me what I'm going to do with wine. And I, I said, well, I have friends that have extensive wine collections. And one of the things they have done is they have had used restaurants to store their wine and allow them to sell their wine in a markup and take a piece. And then they don't have this, this storage cost right, of the wine. And you said you should own the wine anyway, because it's a limited resource. It's inflation protected. And you're going to have to have wine anyway. And I, I started thinking about it. I said, that's not that bad of an idea. I actually do believe in the thesis that wine is a limited resource with population growth and more and more people are drinking wine. I, I am kind of bullish the prices. And I do see the, the scarcity of it. And I was like, all right, maybe I'll, maybe I'll take the money that's just sitting there earning 0.5 and stick it into the wine cellar. Well, I'm extremely bullish the prices. The problem is that as an individual, I'm bullish the prices, but also want to drink the supply. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As, a, as a restaurant, you could be bullish the prices and have it all on a spreadsheet yeah. and be like, this is my inventory. And I expect it to increase at a rate of 15 to 20% a year because the supply is going down rapidly every year and the demand is going up rapidly every year. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was, that was a good, that was a good point of it. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't mind that play. I don't mind putting it. I mean, I'm more focused on right now. I mean, it's, I want to have the most ludicrous customer experience at a vegan restaurant you possibly have. Like I, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm like big in experiences and experience for myself. And I'm just like, how, how great could I make this? And, you know, to the point where, you know, I was talking about the consultant is like, well, the marketing and whatever is like marketing. We're not fucking marketing. Like if we're not good enough, that word of mouth that people aren't like, Hey, you have to come here. Then we're not good enough yet. And I don't want to market to them. Right. I, I, I want it to be like, you know, I, I, I think about that. I think like some of the places that I want to go and I want to get into, there's, there's no marketing. Oh right? yeah. They, they're like, they're like the real, the experiences like there's no, there's no TV commercials or brochures or magazines, whatever. It's like you heard about it and people are like, you have to go do this. And you, 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 you're like fighting to get in, right? Like you're, 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 you're making, you're putting in significant effort into getting in these places. Now I, I don't, I, I want to, have that type of experience so that people want to travel to come to this place, both in the food, the customer service, the, the total experience and the atmosphere and the ambiance and the vibe. I love it. 
I have two final questions for you and they're related. Um, you have a startup sky fi yes. that sounds fascinating. It's basically like a usable version of Google earth. Um, and the way that it's related to my second question is, uh, recently you posted on Twitter that you made an impulse flight to go recruit at a school, um, <clears throat> that had very talented young engineers. And so having just finished teaching this quarter myself, the second part of the question is what advice do you have for 20 somethings? You write a lot in your Twitter threads about the importance of programming, but what, what general advice do you have for someone in your twenties and then for your startup? What, what are the kind of super talented kids that you're trying to recruit? Yeah. Uh, for the twenties, I mean, I, I generally with the young people, I, 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 I tell them, you know, realize the asymmetry of your position. Like you should be taking so much fucking risk and, and, and as much risk as you possibly stand and a little bit more. Um, and, and, and I, I also try and clarify that as, you know, let them know that they're young, they can recover. Like look at president Barack Obama, you know, in his book, he's talking about, he's doing crack and then he's a president seven years later, right? Like he's despondent job, not knowing where he was going to be, you know, whatever, doing drugs. And then, you know, he's the president of the United States of America seven years later. Right. Like, you know, I, I, I remind them of dynamic decisions versus static decisions, right? Like later on in life, you're going to think, make things like I'm going to get married. I'm going to have kids. And these kids affect every, uh, these, these decisions affect every subsequent decision. Right. And you haven't, haven't really done that. They limit what you can do. And then on top of that, your risk profile is not just you. You're not like, oh, I'm just going to go jump out of a helicopter and pull a parachute. Like you don't have the right to take that risk because you have young kids or et cetera. Right. Otherwise. And so the asymmetry of your position allows you to take, you know, very, very good risk reward, uh, bets with your life that you won't be able to do it later. And so, um, make sure you take advantage of that. Right. That's the, biggest thing. And I, and I don't mean it just like financially. I mean it like emotionally. I mean, like, you know, many people won't move, right. For an opportunity because well, I've always lived here and so-and-so's here whatever. And I'm like, do the math. Like if somebody lives two miles away from you in New York city, right. They might as well be 2000 miles away. Right. Like you can come fly back and visit them. Like you might actually move out of town and see them more. Right. If you're in New York City, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, I'm not crossing town to the east side, you know? What I mean? You know, I gotta go down, get on the ACD, cut over, right? Like, you know, you just you just don't see each other as much, even though you're in the same city. You're like, you know, a mile and a half away, right? You might as well be 500 miles away. And so, you know, that is kind of like my biggest advice to them is like, you know, emotional, um, um spiritual, financial, career-wise, et cetera, take those risks and follow your passion. You know, a lot of people just kind of like, oh, well, this is the job and I'm supposed to be in here or whatever. And I'm like, no, 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 go do the thing. You know, go do the thing you want to go do, take the risk. Now you've mentioned coding before as something that's 
worth the time investment. That is a real investment because you're talking about yeah. hundreds of hours of real pain yeah. in the prime of your life. Like yeah. what leads you to believe that those are hundreds so, of so, hours that people should so, invest in? So the investing, I, I just, there is, in, in my experience, um, whether it's lawyering or whatever, like coding, um, being the person that can tell machines what to do and machines are wonderful. They're great. These computers are wonderful, but they're dumb as fuck. <laughs> right? They need humans to code them to tell them what to do. Um, and then they do things at scale that humans cannot do uh, and quickly. And, 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 and it becomes very valuable uh, to society, to everyone, not, not just financially, but just in the insights that they provide and the things they can do. And so the those positions telling machines not only does it help you but you're just always in demand like and and i i am i'm literally like almost in fistfights trying to hire programmers right and it's wonderful right like i complain about it but i'm also happy about it because the fact that i can't hire a programmer like these guys are like you know, we're, we're a startup, right? We haven't set up our ESOP, our employee stock option program, right? We did just like day five, right? We're trying to hire more. What's your ESOP? Oh, we don't have one. It's coming. Fuck you. <laughs> I'm out here. I'm going to come. I'm like, wait, this, this guy, like, just like, like, you know what I mean? Like, oh my God. And then the next person comes in and, you know, you, you, you hire one person and they get it, it, like in between them accepting or whatever, somebody else steals them away. Right. And, you know, normally you'd be like pissed about it, but I'm like, wow, this means that Lots of people are working on interesting problems to solve. So life is going to get better, right? Even though I'm disappointed that I didn't get them to work on my problem, right? That I want to solve. The world is out there using this resource completely to solve all kinds of interesting problems, right? And that's the great thing about it, right? So even though selfishly, I'm like, shit, I didn't get this superstar programmer. She took off, right? Um, I know that they're going out there and there's a high probability that something wonderful is going to happen to make my life better or my kid's life better. What type of programmers are you hiring at SkyFi and what, what are the major projects? Um, I mean, it's, you know, for my, I, I'm not like the CTO, but like I say, it's front end and back end. We're, we're heavy hiring Python people, Python. And, and I think like Java or, 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 or some version of that. Um, you know, that's the language, but programmers can, once you're a programmer, I think they learn other languages fairly, fairly, fairly easy, right? Each language has its, its, its advantages because we do a lot of, uh, machine learning, object detection, yada, 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 um, uh, stuff like that. There are other languages that are more efficient, but harder to do, you know, to implement, you know, more pain, but, um, and then there's, there's front-end developers. I mean, at the end of the day, the user experience is king, right? Like I always say, the customer drives all the value. Like I have friends that come out, I'm starting a business, I'm building the thing or whatever. I'm like, you're going backwards. I'm like, fuck the thing. Anybody can build the thing, right? I was like, if you show me a million people a year who are loyal to me and going to buy a car from me, guess what? I'm a fucking car company. I've not built a car in my life, but I bet you if you give me a million fucking customers, they're going to pay me $50,000 for a car. I'll be a fucking car company. You show me 2 million people are going to buy a pizza every, every month. Guess what? I'm a fucking pizza hut, right? So the relationship with the customer is everything. 
every fucking thing. And brands, what they do is try and create a relationship with the customer. Nike, just do it. You identify me, you buy my shit. It's more expensive and it's the same fucking t-shirt as somebody else, but you identify me. Now I have a relationship with the customer, right? Fucking anybody can make a t-shirt or build, get sneakers made outside, et cetera. It's not the fucking thing. It's the customer. And so that user experience is everything. And so um, these front-end developers that generally program in Java or whatever the language that makes the user experience less painful, like, why the fuck do I got to fill in this thing? Or why am I clicking this wing? Why is it slow or whatever? Like those small clicks or frustration points for customer is the difference between your app or your service dying and somebody else taking or somebody else going there. And so, you know, that UX uh, person and designer, that, that programmer that can take the UX leads, you know, direction and give that, that's hyper important. But then also the, the back end, the shit, the API that makes it work is just as important too. So they're all in there to make the customer experience, uh, uh, the user experience, what it needs to be. Right. It's all UX. At the end of the day, I'm just a UX guy. I love it. All right. I, I can't resist the temptation to add one last You can question. ask as many questions as you want. We're we, we rolling, man. We're rolling. So don't feel free to roll. Uh, oh, I love it. Uh, so 75 minutes is no longer. It's not, that, it's like not hard it. cap. Nobody's, nobody's message. We had a, how about this? We'll do a quick, we'll do a quick check. Nobody's yelling. If nobody's yelling at me, we're fine. Nobody is yelling at me. Let's go. I love it. <laughs> So you, you mentioned that poker has sort of slipped from the life optimization problem. You, part of the getting health in order is you just have to prioritize your time so efficiently right. running two businesses, doing the startup, all of that. What, uh, what would be a poker event that would get you super fired up? I mean, okay. So, or a game. Like, what's the perfect situation? Well, you know, I like, I like live poker and I like, I like tournaments, right? Um, but the main thing is time. Like, they got to be three days and a nice destination, right? So, like, I'd be, like, fired up. I want to go there. So, if you're like, hey, we got a three-day, you know, high roller tournament, big field in Barcelona, I, I, I want to go. <laughs> I really, really want to go. Right. So I'm moving things around. I want to go. Um, th those things kind of get me fired up. Right. And if there's, you know, it's behavior design, right? Like everything's behavior design. Right. So my motivation is my motivation. I love poker. I want to play. Right. So it's, I always at a certain level to play. So you, the next thing, you know, behavior is a convergence of your motivation, your ability and a prompt. A prompt is just, hey, this is happening. A reminder that's happening. So my motivation is already high. I love poker. So make it easy for me. Make it easy for me. If making a nice three-day event, you know, easy to get in, blah, 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 then I'm really psyched to play. And you can jump the motivation a little bit by having it in a nice place. Like, oh, you're already going to be vacationing here. You already wanted to go here. You already you know, want to be in that spot. Then, Yeah. Uh, it, you know, I, I want to go, I get jazzed, but that gets me jazzed. Uh, you know, the, the heads up tournaments, the, those things get me jazzed. Cash games get me jazzed. You know, it's just, it's just timing, right? Like making it easy on the timing, right? A lot of these high rollers that poker go have, they, they like to make them five days. I'm like, I can't do five days. And they, they stagger them out. Right. And I, I understand why, right. They want the TV content. 
etc. They like to bring out the drama, yada. But I, I can't do that. Like I'm not, I'm not the retired old guy yet. Where it's like I got lots of time and I'm doing these things. Right. I'm still, I still have uh, purposeful things that I want to do that are not easy for me to cut. So now that you've given me the overtime, I, I have to take advantage. Um, on my second reading of your book, there was a passage that said that you like to rail against bank bailouts. And I said, you know what? I would love to hear Bill rail against bank bailouts. And I haven't heard that in any podcast. Yeah. So I, I, I really want to hear this spiel, which is pres presumably relates to the fact that you don't want to bail out others for bad gambles or yeah. I, I would, I would love to hear this. Yeah. I mean, it, it started in like, Oh eight, right? Like I took, uh, these full page ads out in the New York times against the bank bailouts. I took like three or four out. Um, and I was just furious at, at them bailing out the banks, right. Instead of, uh, uh, and, uh, um, Setting and letting them fail. Did right? you have a horse in the race in terms of bets, uh, subprime bets or anything like no, that? No, or no, shorts no, no, on no. The banks so or? what happened was, is that like the, the, the world was melting, right? These guys made all kinds of bets, did all kinds of stupid things, right? Like, um, um, giving, you know, giving mortgages to, to, you know, these liar loans and over leveraging people and, and, you know, under this uh, looking backwards saying, oh, real estate has never dropped more than, you know, let's say 10 or 20% in a year. I'm like, well, did they ever fucking double <laughs> in a year? Like, <laughs> you know, like, you know, this is a different context, right? Like it was just like the dumbest fucking thing. And they would actually say these things uh, to like in Congress. Well, we, our models, you know, never went down. And like, so you're trying to tell me it can go up 8x but not go down 30 percent it's like it's just it's just stupid right it was just like the dumbest thing right and so you know they blame our models and the mathematicians right like stop you know it was just really just hornswoggle and so you know they're just like bailing out bondholders and these rich guys like me and so i had this trade on like i got long Coleman sacks that was coming down just fucking punting gambling Right. And then the news of the bailout comes out and stock just fucking rips up. Uh, I make like one point two five million dollars in like a day. Right. And I'm like, this is fucking disgusting. Like I should I, I want to make money, but I should not be able to make money this way with on, on a government handout to to these banks like they should fail. The big banks should, you know, be around. These other businesses should get destroyed. They should wipe out. You know, they were giving money to like these banks. If you look, if you add up the money, right, they could have just gave like 50, 60, $100,000 to every single person that lost a job or had some sort of a cutout, a, a direct injection, right? They're bailing out G, uh, GM. And I'm like, I think the workers would have taken the money. I think they would have taken two years salary, you know, retrained, went out, let that fucking behemoth go under and let the entrepreneurs come in. And I have to fight this Goliath, right? This lack of innovation, whatever bad bets they made. You know, people might argue one way or another, but the bottom line is, is that it was socialism. Like, it's true. Like, I'm not, I'm not like a, a Bernie guy or, 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 or uh, um, um, what's it? Robert, Robert, Robert. Right. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not him, but it's, it, it, it's true. It's like socialism for the rich and unadulterated capitalism, right? 
for, for the for the poor a, a common person and i just was like i i don't believe that well let's say prior to 2008 i didn't uh believe that to be entirely true there's definitely snippets at that but this 08 08 was just egregious and then it set up the model for it to be done again right and so i lost my mind took out these ads and you know it was this big to do about what was going on and so like it's like these guys if they make big enough bets right they'll just get bailed out by the taxpayer i, I don't get bailed out like I, I get knocked out. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like, like, I don't get bailed out. I get knocked out, right? And I was just like so pissed. And so many other other people get get knocked out. Like I, you know, there were lots of businesses, et cetera, that they took the risk, right? They go out, they open their restaurant. Look at the restaurant doors, right? Like the failure rate of a restaurant, right? They make these bets and they get knocked the fuck out. And there's all kinds of other businesses that get knocked the fuck out. And I salute them, right? Like, because they're out there risking their capital, risking their lives, pursuing their dreams, trying to do something. There's no bailout for them, right? People forget, like, small businesses, that's the biggest employer, right? Small businesses are the biggest employers in the United States of America. But somehow there's this thing where if you have enough people that'll vote on your side, you got the unions or so-and-so, et cetera, they'll come fucking bail you out, you know? And it's this political process of like, of this crony capitalism, which really isn't capitalism that I'm very much against. So in 2008, um, our choice was to bail out the banks. Alternatively, we could have done nothing or we could have, although it would have taken longer, bailed out the homeowners and your choice would have been to bail out the homeowners, figure out that process. Well, so people are like, oh, we're going to bail out the banks or whatever. I'm like, listen, you're FDI insured up to $250,000. Okay. So the banks can fail. Everyone's like, oh, we're, we're going to lose our money. Like we heard arguments like that. I'm like, no, you're not. Those people like panicking at the banks. I'm like, you're insured. Your money's not going fucking anywhere. Right. And so, and the homeowners, right. A lot of them were speculative homeowners buying stuff like, the the bonds on those homes were crashing, et cetera. The bank might have went bust, but I'm still in my home. If I'm making my mortgage right. payment, I'm not going broke, right? Right. Now the guys were buying five condos and trying to lever them up and do whatever. Yeah, they're gonna go bust though, but they're gambling. Yeah. Right. But now we have this like kind of like this asymmetric help thing going on, like, oh, we're gonna bail you out and you get a little bit, but fuck you and fuck you and you and you and you and you. But we're gonna give the money to this and you know, this big giant company over here, we're going to give a bunch of money, but really it's a bailout of the bondholders. When people really look at it, like it's a, a little bit of a bailout of the equity holders, but it's a bailout of bondholders. Yeah. Right. And so people are just like, oh, the government is never going to let my bonds go busto if I invest in these companies, if I invest in airlines. And they did it again with the fucking airlines this time. Yeah. Right. And everybody was like, oh, you can't let the airlines fail. I'm like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? They wipe out the bound holders. Somebody else comes in and buys the airline. It still fucking goes. Like people think like, oh, that like United's just going to go away and they're not, the slots are going to go away and not going to fly. I'm like, no, new people are going to come in and own the airline and it's going to run. Right. It's like, it's not going to just disappear. Right. There's still demand for travel. There's still people that are going to show up. There's just going to be a new capitalization of this airline. It's going to be a little bit crunchy while that goes through, but that's it. Right. But what happened is, is they bailed out the bondholders of the airlines. They did it again. Yeah. 
They're Whoa. like, you know, I'm like, oh, everybody's going to lose their job. I'm like, no, they're fucking not. Well, you're optimistic on capitalism, but in DC, they're not very optimistic on capitalism. They're, no, no, no. They're, 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 the, 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 the incentives are not aligned. The, the primary thing is they want to get reelected. And the way people get elected is this giant marketing machine that goes on that costs a lot of money and through donors and they can have their packs lined with donors and they can have their voters. They can also get the voter voters uh, in blocks to donate money. And then they can also win the hearts and minds of people with certain policies, right? Some pandering policy. And so if you, if you don't understand finance or, or you know, you, it's very easy and very seductive for you to come to those ideas like, oh, this congressman helped bail out my airline and, and therefore I have a job, so I'm going to vote for this guy. And these guys, now they got bailed out and the bondholders got bailed out. Where, who the fuck do you think they're going to give money to in the packs, right? And so th- that that maintains their power base, right? And and so I, I'm sorry to be so cynical. And so like, but if you really think about it, it's like, the airline business is not going anywhere. The fucking planes are not going anywhere, right? The only thing that happens is there be new owners. <laughs> and so they bailed out the old owners and, and, and they didn't save your job at fucking all. What they do, it did is use taxpayers' money to solidify their power base. Do you think that we will ever reverse the multi-trillion dollar deficits that have become habit? Or do you think that COVID created a change in government, a permanent change in government. I, um, in my lifespan and I look at history, I've just seen the government continually, um, overspend irrespective of COVID. COVID was just another excuse to like, Oh, you know, the government has always used some sort of emergency, it doesn't matter what it is to spend more money to, to, to have more power over the, over uh, the finances to spend more money um, to, to increase the the power of the executive branch. Um, And so I've never seen that trend reverse. And I, I understand that history is not necessarily a predictor of future behavior, but I'm very pessimistic on that happening until the great collapse because it eventually collapses. So that would be an inflationary collapse. Yeah, I, I don't know how it, I, I don't know how it is, but I know that it's unsustainable, right? And and it could be it, it could rear its head in different ways as like you're already spending all the future you're spending all the current resources and you're spending the future resources. And so then you have um as that like those pressures start to you know work their way through society, right? You have distortions in way things are being allocated and you have things being eaten up and gobbled and you, you have lots of social stress. So it can, it can tear a country apart. It has tear, torn countries apart, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be this one big giant financial collapse. It could be just this thing is now boiling out of control because resources are not being dedicated and it's falling apart because we couldn't do it. Right. It could be as simple as simple as like the tax dollars that were supposed to be going to maintaining the roads and not maintaining the roads. I'm like, why do we have to have a, a roads bill? Right. We pay a federal highway tax that 
per mile, right? That should correlate into making sure the bridges and the roads are maintained properly, right? But, you know, the tax dollars just go into the treasury and the treasury just does whatever the fuck they do with the money. So like, are they properly allocating the money to the roads or not? I don't know. I'm just using this as a, like a, an example, right? It might be a bad example, but you get my point, right? Like the dollars that are coming in that are supposed to be going into social security and making sure they go into social security, well, they're spent. There's no real lockbox, right? They say, you know, it's just one big bank account, right? And they spend it, right? And so I think that um, you, you're, you're, you know, using the roads example, right? Like, what if this is not going to happen this way, but what if all the roads just crumbled, right? People don't realize, like, the roads are how all our goods go back and forth. Take away the roads, we fall apart your railroads look at railroads right like i mean they're supposed to maintain privately but like i i read somewhere that if the railroads went down the united states of america starts to starve in four days all the goods and services so i'm not saying that's the way it's going to happen i'm just saying mm -hmm. like you know you know inflation is distortion of relative of relative prices right everybody thinks like it's everything goes up i'm like well it's everything doesn't just go up equally things get distorted and those distortions cause problems, right? And that's how you can have, well, you know, this went up 5X and this is actually cheaper or this is whatever. And these distortions and relative prices is what causes all, all the stress and strain besides just pricing going up, right? One of the distortions that happens that really pisses people off is the price of labor versus the price of goods, right? So it's not just inflation goes up and, you know, my wages went up, so everything's fine and hunky-dory. Nobody cares. We're just doing zeros with math, right? Um, what happens is, is, like, everything costs more that I use and eat and consume, and my price of my labor did not go up. That's one of the biggest distortions in relative prices that people track. But it's other things as well. Yeah, and you traffic in commodity markets. Obviously, commodity markets have been booming, and that seems to be a driver of future inflation and probably uh will continue for a while i don't know yeah i don't know i mean um labor inflation raw inputs materials inflation right and it, it can link into other things like like people don't realize like how important diesel is to other like metals and mining right You're, all the machines that move them run on diesel Right. And so th those go up. Right. And then the cost of labor and that goes up and all, well, I need piping to get this natural gas out or oil ass out. Right. And steel and nickel is up. Right. So what's ultimately causing that? Um, and, and, you know, certain things can can run faster and inflate things. And then, then you have, you know, kind of this runaway cycle. Um, although I'm, I'm always like. I'd say like. 90 something percent of my career i've always been bearish commodities right um because i'm a believer in technology and human being and ingenuity to do things faster better cheaper but you know the money supply going crazy and labor i mean these it does take humans it does take other machines it does take uh stuff like that so i i, I really don't know but i do believe that um when you just kind of look at each commodity 
and what's going on and what is planned, I'm like, prices have to go up, right? People are like, oh, we're going to have all this wind power and we're going to have these batteries. Like, that's a fuck ton of copper. You know what I mean? The wiring, that's a fuck ton of copper. That's a lot of nickel, right? Like, you know, there's a, the, the, the things that we need in order to meet our goals, whether they be climate goals or, 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 or population, electrifying certain populations, et cetera. Um, I'm like, wow. I'm like, I'm, I'm literally like, wow, at the, at, at the, the, the amount of uh, commodities that need to be produced and put into them. And I'm just like, that infrastructure doesn't seem to be in place and it seems to be getting more expensive. You, uh, you have an instinct for thinking about supply and demand curves. It's just, is that always been true? It's you're just, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I just, you know, just kind of go to the most rudimentary block way thinking like, you know, it's kind of like, okay, you know, uh, you know, like right now in energy, which is kind of like where, where my specialty is, right? Like, you have this um, kind of energy transition that has, right? And you have these vested groups, right? They're, they're like, we gotta have it now for whatever reason. They're panicking. I'm like, you know, I'm not judging whether the goal now, et cetera, is, 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 is it's a timeline, et cetera, but like people are not planning this properly, right? They're, they're making like policy, like, okay, you must have X renewables by X date and you must have X, Y by X date. And I just go, okay, this is, this is the fiefdom. This is the way it is. You know, what, what's that gonna, what's, what does that mean? You know, and I'm just like, um, like three years ago, I, I was putting out, I was talking to energy people. I said, you know, this is the greatest infrastructure um, in terms of capital uh, change ever in the United States of America. Greater than the New Deal, greater than anything. I was like, do you understand how many power plants and steel and, and copper, et cetera, these, these rules have put in place? Like it is a massive change. And then you have lots of intermittent um, renewables coming onto the grid. And to support that, do you understand how massive of infrastructure we have to put in place or the market is going to go fucking nuts at times and it's going to uh, oscillate between undersupply and oversupply like crazy, you know? And so I just kind of like, okay, this is the setup and this is what's going to happen. And just kind of like very, you know, using sledgehammer, not a tweezer, right? Like, <laughs> you know, like sometimes, sometimes people like, you know, you don't need a tweezer. You just need a sledgehammer. You can <laughs> see it coming. Right. And so I don't think I'm thinking about it differently. I think I'm just thinking about it deeply. Do you relate to Gen X? Do you have a, do you have a generation that you define yourself by? Well, I don't like, like I, I've noticed like sometimes I put out arguments. Somebody says like, okay, boomer. But I'm like, my parents were in the baby boomer generation. I'm not yeah. You should be Gen X seemingly. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I tend to relate to young people. Um, just cause, uh, I kind of oscillate back and forth cause I'm always like a pessimist on humanity. You know, when I look at the numbers in terms of like, um, pollution, what we're doing to the world, uh, despeciation, um, just the energy balance of food, right? When you look at like, it takes between 10 and 15 calories, um, for every calorie of food you eat. 
and you just run the numbers and you add, you know, it's just like, oh, wow. And if we're growing at one or 2%, that energy balance is crazy, right? And then if you look at like what the energy mix is to do that, like to bring that food to you, natural gas, the coal, right? Um, and then the plastic and the packaging and et cetera, that like winds up in our oceans. I'm just like, oh, we're fucked, right? And yeah. then, but, but then I also have this like kind of like, optimistic idealistic like technology can bail us out and there's lots of entrepreneurs out there solving all kinds of interesting problems and then we may we're, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna address these issues before they become this catastrophic point but you know when i go out there and i look at like what's happening into our oceans particularly and the water and the pollutants and the microplastics that are in your bloodstream now i'm just like oh we're fucked <laughs> so so i i kind of have like this old like we're fucked up versus this young optimistic we're gonna solve the world you know, and, you know like do you have a preferred author or thinker for those that aren't familiar with some of the things that you're talking about the energy balance and so forth uh I'm, it's it's such a complex topic that i would imagine it it's yeah yeah it's it's i don't because um I don't think anybody, you know, has, um, you know, I like following, I'll tell you who I like following. I like our, our world. Um, uh, I think it's our world in data, right? It was like human progress, which is kind of like the, the Scandinavian guy or something. It's kind, of, it's kind of like the optimistic side of things. Like this is how things have gotten better, right? Like this is, you know, costs, you know, hours, hours you have to work for, for one lumen of light, right? You know, cost of food over time right like you know we're always focused locally like oh shit got worse the past year inflation but like if you look over the log charts like i don't know you know crude you know gasoline is really not that expensive you know what i mean it's not that expensive relative to everything else right like uh you know certain things aren't going there but the markers i follow the things i'm really worried about like how many different type of fish are in the ocean and what's the population error, how much microplastics are in the ocean and how much oil is in the ocean and nitrates and soil levels and deforestation and things like that. Right. These are the things that like, you know, you pull one rivet out of the plane when you're flying, right. It's no big deal. So you just keep pulling out rivets and rivets on the wing. Right. And then all of a sudden it's catastrophic. Right. And so I look at the situation environmentally, like we're just pulling rivets out of the wing while we're flying everybody's fucking just having tea and having a good time and Instagramming out of the plane and all this other stuff. But I'm sitting there going, okay, I think we got about 30 rivets to go and we're fucked. Right. And nobody's got parachutes. So, um, that I get, maybe Elon Musk has a parachute with us with, with going to Mars, but you know what I mean? Like we, and, and spacesuits and stuff like that. But that, that's kind of like my, you know, look at, um, at the world right now, instead of looking backwards, like I think, you know, the progress we've made in human progress or whatever, it's kind of like, look how far we've come and look how better it's gotten and world poverty and all these other things have actually gotten a lot better. Capitalism has lifted us out of so many issues and made the world better for so many people. But on a go forward basis, I think that, you know, the balance sheet is not correct. And what, what I mean is, is that, you know, let's say you, 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 you have a coal company and you, you sell electricity to, to people and people are benefits. Society's benefit. Electricity is a, a, is a great thing, 
right? Society benefits from that. And then you make your profits from selling, you know, taking in a coal, et cetera, right? But what we're missing is, is that you paid for the coal, you paid for your workers, you paid for the steel, but you're not paying for the radionucleotides from the coal ash that's spewing out. You're not paying for the sulfur and the particulate matter that's been coming out. Now that's changing. Now there's a cap and trade market, et cetera. But you're not paying for that environmental damage that is dispersed amongst everybody. So everybody's paying for the environmental damage and they're paying for the electricity and you're taking the profits. And that's not just in, in, in just coal business. I know people like to pick on the coal business because it's easy and it's, it's easy to look at and see, but it's every business, right? You open up a cleaners, right? Do this, you do the surface, you collect it, but you're not paying for the chemicals that you're spewing into the air from your cleaners, right? And so there's two ways you can do that, right? Like we can put a cost, society can put a cost on it and put the economics on it. And then you'll, you'll put all the equipment needed to reduce the, et cetera. Or we can say, you just can't pollute this, right? You can't, this can't be done. And so we've kind of like had a hodgepodge of that, right? Like we have that you just can't pollute this. The problem with that you just can't pollute this is, is that it's a slow process and doesn't capture everything, right? And so the by and large, the the you know even farming right like the farmers are out there to doing this they raise the crops they get the money for the crops right etc but who's paying for fucking nitrogen that you put in the river that are killing the fish down there right and so the balance sheet is just all fucked up <laughs> what is the the time frame that you have in mind where you've sort of pulled the last rivet or what have you in in miami we have our own timelines because we figure the the oceans will be a few feet higher in 80 years and Miami will I, mostly not exist. I, I, I mean, shit, I'm not the expert on the timing, or whatever. And I think anytime somebody makes a forecast, that's like, you know, your, your accuracy uh, decreases kind of with your, vis, you know, with time, right. Um, your visibility, but I'm always like 30 years not always 30 years. I'm recently been 30 years, right? I'm like 30 years within 30 years. Like we're at a real crisis in many different areas. And I think we're at a, and I, I I'm like, and that's like the optimistic case. Like I, I think, you know, when I go into kind of like the level headed environmentalists, not the people actually who are pragmatic and understand the solution, they're like 20 years and we're like severe crisis, severe. Yeah. And that's far outside of consensus, which maybe consensus probably doesn't think about it too often, but they would certainly place it at a, a farther away date. Yeah. I mean, you're just, you're just, you're just not looking at the food equation properly. You know, you're not looking at the demands. Like it, it's, it's pretty nasty. It's pretty nasty. We just like do the raw numbers and you just do raw population growth and you just run the energy equation and then you, run the pollutants associated with that. And it's just, it's just like, it's insane. And the, the observed consequences already are pretty severe in terms of temperatures out West and droughts and fires. And all yeah. That. I mean, uh, the environment, uh, I mean, the, the, the climate one is kind of hard, right? Like it's like, do I attribute the drought to the, to the CO2 and the greenhouse effect? Do I attribute it to natural things, et cetera. But I, I like to stay more like in like, um, things that people cannot argue against. 
like nobody can argue about the nitrogen in the Gulf and the fertilizer runoff, the Roundup in the weed. Nobody can argue the microplastics situation, right? That's not like, oh, did the microplastics happen because it's on a 50-year earth cycle or sunspots? That's like, no, the microplastics come from Dow Chemical right there that went into that packaging, <laughs> that went into that dump, that went into the ocean, right? Like nobody, you know, like nobody can argue that one, right? Like, so I like to stick with that. Like, oh yeah, the, the, the salmon population of the fifth population here is X, Y, and Z. The, you know, the fact that we're sticking our food in ice engines, right? palm oil like uh these policies where you know you might nobody I, I think people probably think i'm crazy i'm like biodiesel is the devil like people don't understand that they were cutting down rainforest to grow palm oil to make biodiesel to stick in engines because palm oil and soil they're going fucking nuts because of biodiesel and 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 also because of food oils as well but like the biodiesel is the biggest environmental scam ever. And people are going to realize it too late. It, it's, it's, uh, and it's so entrenched in this political process, right? Like you can, you're never going to get rid of, I'm like, I don't know how you get rid of the, the biodiesel thing, right? Like, you know, they, they said, oh, well, I think, well, there'll be about, you know, a couple hundred thousand, a million barrels of biodiesel when we put this tax program out for biodiesel and this incentive structure. Now it's like millions of barrels, right? Like, <laughs> you know, like they're out there and there's this whole industry of like uh, sticking, uh, you know, growing crops and putting it in, in biodiesel to, and it's just like, first of all, it's not even energy efficient. I don't care what anybody says, right? You use natural gas to like uh, make the fertilizer to grow the thing. Then you're going to transport it by truck and then you got to bring it in a truck. Then you bring it in and then you got to crush it and get the oil out. And then you turn it to diesel and then you stick it in a truck and then you burn it. Right. And I'm like, this is, this is not, this is not even, this is not energy efficient. This is like environmentally destructive. And now you created these spiking prices and incentives for people to just like cut down everything and grow soy oil right and so these are the things like that i'm kind of watching just I'm just like oh we're just so fucked we're so fucked it doesn't matter what i say what i talk about like people got to worry about like their own lives and the things they want to do and they just don't have time to like worry about it and you know they're like yeah 30 rivets it's a little bit down the road fuck it i'll be dead let the future generations worry about it yeah human psychology is impressive like for instance no one would have predicted that Miami could be having its biggest boom of all times, like a truly unimaginable boom in 2022. Like most people would have said, no one's going to buy on the ocean property in Miami in 2022. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's how, yeah. I think a lot of, you know, I, I was like, Oh, if people were worried about global warming and the water rising, like how can the real estate go crazy? But then there's other variables going on. Like, there's a lot of people who were sick of the restrictions in other states and, and the reaction to COVID-19. And people, the tax base situation is another thing, right? So, and then that, and the warm, right? I think also people were like, why the fuck am I living in this freezing ass place? Like I just, they just robbed me of two years of my life, right? Depending how old you are, like for me, that's, you know, that's like 7%, right, of 
like my total life left. Right. And, and, and of my like years where I'm walking around, I'm active. It might even be like 10 or 12%. Right. I'm just like, Oh fuck, I'm out of here. You know, people have pent up, you know, when you take something away from people, right. That's when they, you know, don't you always know, <laughs> you don't know what you got until it's gone. Right. Like that song. Right. And so people got locked down and they're like, Oh no, 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 no. I'm going to live. Right. I'm going to travel. I'm going to do the thing. I'm going to move where I want to go. I'm going to work the job. I'm going to work. Fuck this shit. Right. And I think that's part of it. I think the tax structure is part of it. I think the COVID-19 structure is part of it. You know, the weather's part of it. And Florida's booming. Miami's booming. We got to save Cali. Cali is too, too nice. Can't let, can't let Cali be completely depleted. Yeah. I mean, I mean, these, these are, these are tough problems because like the politics and the rules and the situation are pragmatic. Even the people are environmentalists. Like the, a lot of them are so clueless, right? They, 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 they are, they're very emotional and they care, but they don't have proper, they're like some of the policies just exacerbate the problem, right? Like, I don't know who the fuck supported biodiesel, but what the fuck? You know what I mean? Like that, that's a, that's a perfect example, right? I don't know who is like trying, you know, the people trying to shut down nuclear plants, but I'm just like, what the fuck? Like, you know, like, you know, they're, they're, you're causing the problem. Right. And so I, I put out some tweets where I'm just like, if you're an environmentalist and you're anti-nuclear or not pro-nuclear, I can't take you seriously. You know, I just don't take you seriously. I, I know you care. It's not like I don't think you mm -hmm. care. I just can't take you seriously. You know, um, th these type of things. You know, if you're if you're talking about climate change or whatever, and you're not talking about the food issue, right, and, and the animal agriculture, then I just can't. I can't take you seriously. Is uh, uranium the the future? I don't know if it's a future, but I I, I know that like. Uh, you're not going to put like I've developed solar plants, right? Like I built a very large one in, um, in, um, Nevada. Okay. A town site. It's up, up and running. I sold it to uh, capital dynamics, which is now called a Right. And I've put in batteries, et cetera. And people really don't understand the timeline and what it takes to get just 60, hundred megawatts of solar in place. I finance wind projects in Nicaragua as part of a wind project in Texas. And so I understand renewables and pro-renewables. You guys are on fucking crack if you think that's enough, right? And in any, in any kind of realistic time frame, right? In our lifetimes, in the youngest person's lifetimes, okay? And so, um, you know, China's putting like hundreds of coal plants per year. It's, it's crazy. Right. So people don't understand the energy balance and the infrastructure. Right. They don't understand like Germany and it's coal burning now because of the way they've implemented their energy transition. Right. And so, you know, we have uh, just kind of this weird dynamic and system of like people care, but don't really understand what they care about. Right, how to implement effective change and be effective about their emotional and their caring. Right. And then we have people that don't care. And then we also have people that use those people as weapons. Right. I don't know if you saw that 
there's this battle going on about trying to transmit hydropower from Canada, where it's trapped, into North America. But we have this town shutting down the wiring and the process, like protests, et cetera, right? And they, they're being funded by natural gas and other energy um, ventures, right? So they have their reasons, right? They got them all riled up. They're getting funded, and there's people who just paid to protest and do that. And they've shut this down. It's going to the courts about trying to move hydropower that's already there in Canada, <laughs> clean energy into the U.S., right? Making it more efficient, et cetera, right? And so this kind of like nimbyism and you know I, that's one thing i told uh, some of the developers in california i said listen when you when you try and go build something in california it's really not the environmentalists who are attacking you it's your competitors through them it happens everywhere all the time to use the rules and and and, and people as pawns for other economic interests i think it was pretty public about um there was this uh uh, I, I don't know the very specifics, but like in um, there was this this gas plant and these gas plants being built. And this guy who had a bunch of coal plants was like funding the environmental opposition against the gas plants. Right. So here's this dirty fucking shitty ass coal operator. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But, you know, this is the new thing. Right. This is guys already here. Right. So he's entrenched. Right. And he's funding the environmentalists and the opposition to these gas plants about like, you know, whatever. And I was just kind of like, oh, wow, this is, this is amazing. Like, this is how things are being done. And so that human dynamic and that situation and people's um, kind of. Um, I don't know, benign ignorance or I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, that dynamic that goes on and makes me, makes me extremely pessimistic. Extremely well, to pessimistic. be fair, it's complicated stuff. Like I care and I've read about it, but I don't really know that right. much. It's, it's complicated. It sounds like one of the straightforward implications that you've drawn is that, uh, if more people were vegetarian, that would have a, a very strong environmental impact. Yeah, it's, a, it's like, well, I mean, it's complicated. And I think that's what makes it uh, me pessimistic on all types of fronts, right? Because things eventually just like get to a head. And then people are like, we just need a dictator to dictate, right? We just need somebody to cut through all this bullshit, right? Or, or we, it just ends in catastrophe, right? And so that's, how, that's why I'm just pessimistic. I'm just like, okay, we're in the golden years and for the, for the nation, for the world. And then it's, it's it. But I mean, you know, this, yeah. I don't be gloom and doom. So meanwhile, while we're on the gloom and doom, make sure you optimize your life and get the most <laughs> you get out of it. Like, let's be happy, you know, but then there, let me switch to optimistic side. Like there are solutions to problems that seemingly were intractable that happen all the time. And so. I don't necessarily have the visibility and where that solution solution is going to come out of left field. And I don't even know it, you know, you, you need to start, uh, a podcast making people aware of these issues. Like you need the David Friedberg of the all in that's you guys are cousins and you need a, uh, you need a podcast making people aware of these issues. Cause it honestly is an area where people are just ignorant. Like I'm ignorant and I try to make myself informed. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely ignorant of a, a lot of things. And, and that's like, 
honestly, you shouldn't have to be aware of everything, right? We have limited bandwidth, right? We got families and kids and things we want to do, whatever. Like, who wants to be an expert in the uses of nuclear power versus X, Y, and Z? Who wants to be an expert in, like, the radiation output of coal plants? Like, I tell people, like, radiation from coal plants, they're like, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm like, they're more, they're, they release more radiation than a nuclear plant into the atmosphere. You know, and I explained to him about like, you know, you're taking minerals out of earth, you burn it, it goes in the ash, flies up, you have radionucleotides and it causes issues. Right. And so like, you know, even so like when I plan, like you can't like in the United States, we use coal ash and concrete. That's illegal in Europe because of the radiation. People are like, wait, what? But why would you know that? Like, who knows stupid shit like that? Like, you know what I mean? Like, like you don't want to, who wants to be learning all this crap? Like, you have other things to attend to. You have a life to live. And so a part of, part of that's how people game the system, right? Is they game the system on our collective ignorance and limited bandwidth, right? They slip things by you. They put policies in place where you think, oh, that's a great idea. You're like, no, that's a horrible fucking idea. You know, we need more people out there explaining it clearly in the same way that health podcasts have come up and explain the complexities in a reasonable way. People need to explain the environmental concerns in a reasonable way. Yeah, we do. I, I just, uh, I'm not volunteering. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not volunteering. I'll be a guest. I'll be a guest. I'll come on, you know, I'll, I'll throw my two cents in, but yes. Well, this was, this was so much fun. I really appreciate it. As you know, I've been trying to wrangle you for this podcast for about six months and I'm very, very grateful that it worked out today. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I'm, I'm happy it worked out. I love being in person so much better than on zoom. So really, really great that we got together. Um, sorry, I blathered too long about environmental issues, et cetera, but you know, any, any time I get to talk about like the earth and I, I like to talk about it. Thanks so much. Appreciate it.